This is the Constructionist Podcast, where we take ancient stories, the person of Jesus, current events and topics, and help you construct a new Christian worldview that's relevant and loving to those around you. I'm your host, Kevin Bates. I'm a semiotician and community builder looking at the signs of the times to build a better future together. You are tuned into the Constructionist Podcast, and tonight we're continuing our series on the Book of Mark. We encourage a worldview here at the Constructionist that's built on the principles of Christ. And in this episode, we're going to examine the life of Christ through a clear and honest lens like we always do. So by doing so, we hope to offer insights, perspectives that maybe you've never heard before. Um, Hopefully, they are groundbreaking for you, will help you in your journey towards a greater understanding of maybe scripture, hopefully most of love and compassion for yourself and others. So we want to assure you that in tonight's episode, we're not going to be fabricating anything as many have done. And when we know something, we'll tell you. When we're unsure and guessing, we're going to tell you. So our goal is to provide an honest and authentic perspective in our examination. So this is our thinking space, and we are presenting thoughts and ideas. Sometimes we just muse around and just say things that maybe are need more exploration and we give ourselves space to do so and we want you to do so as well. So tonight we're making our best attempt to explain very practical thoughts to live by. So if you enjoy the construction of this podcast and want to support us financially, please follow the link in the chat and the show notes on the social media platform that you're listening to and visit our give page at resonatelife.org. You can also support us through our Patreon page at The Constructionists. So your support will enable us to continue producing high quality content like this. But even more importantly, we want to interact with you. We want this to be an interactive experience of discussions and lively discussions with our listeners. So we continue to learn and grow together. And we love, to, we, we love exploring what we call a communal hermeneutic. So we value your feedback, questions, and ideas. And we're excited to build a community around our shared exploration. So please don't hesitate to reach out to us and let us know what you think. All right, we are in Mark 11. That's where we are continuing. This is a longer series than we thought, but that's okay. So Mark 11, um, Shreya, Jake, thanks for joining us. I wanted to just start out by giving a note again about deconstruction. And I think deconstruction is an important experience and also a necessary experience to grow in our faith. We actually, this word is kind of a trigger word. It's a trendy word in the Christian circles to use right now, but everyone is a deconstructionist. And I I just wanna make sure that we are clear on that, that everyone has deconstructed something in their life. Every time we go through a new discovery, maybe it's a new piece of information, a new piece of science, a new piece of um, just literature that we read. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. And it threatens old ideas. They don't have to be Christian. Maybe they're just old ideas about how you thought the world worked or was supposed to work or how you were supposed to live or whatever. And we come up with this new thought or a new trajectory. 
So goals and our vision for our life and the things that we are writing down. Maybe I want to accomplish this in 10 years. I want to accomplish something else in 25 years. Maybe you're that long of a thinker. Maybe you just want to accomplish something tonight. <clears throat> in order to accomplish something, you have to leave certain things behind in order to grab onto what is ahead. And that could just be information. That could be knowledge. That could be relationships. That could be a, a job. That could be um, a, a, a career even. In order to accomplish something, you might have to leave your career behind and start a new career because maybe your vision is a new career. So we are all deconstructing something actually all the time. It's like parenting where I learn something new about my kids and I act differently in the future because I just learned that new thing about my kids. So I just want to encourage us as we walk through scripture, it's like scripture is so sacred and so untouchable that we have to believe what we've always believed about this book. And there's a gentleman out there. His name is Keith Giles. And Keith Giles, I, I am getting no, like, we're getting no props or any, we're not prompted to say anything about Keith's work, but I, I've been, I've been really not necessarily enthralled, but I've been in wonder, let's call it wonder of his journey, where this gentleman actually was a pastor and is a pastor. And it seems like in his work, he's made a movement, moving out of movement out of a certain form of pastor being this kind of pastor of a certain structure or system and he moved into something completely different that he like call it called to call it just moved into made the decision said i'm done with this he deconstructed something in order to move into something else and his titling just if you just go to instagram and you look at his titling for his uh, his page, Keith Giles. He's a first century follower of Jesus trapped in a modern American dystopia. And I really appreciate, appreciate that because sometimes we do feel like we're trapped in modern day dystopia. But he writes um, very progressive in some areas that I really, really do uh, appreciate. I appreciate some of his um, ideas. There's just the musing that I've done today. Some of his ideas about the church, some of his ideas about the Bible. Actually, one of the titlings of his article, one of his articles is, um, is does the Bible keep us from hearing the word of God? And I really appreciate that because I know what he's you know saying as I look over the material is that the Bible, the, what we believe about the Bible does many times keep us from hearing the word of God. So that is the deconstruction vein that we are in. We're in the deconstruction of faith principles, Christianity, um, the Bible, looking at that vein of life, theology. And much of our theology or our church structure or our church ideas come from a very modern uh, mentality, modernity mentality. And over time, we've moved into a, let's say, post-modernity mentality. And then, you know, that's what 1950s forward. And then now we're in a post-evangelical mentality. So I would say, and I'm not going to speak for my other two here, but I'm going to speak for myself, is that I would consider myself a post-evangelical 
where I was evangelical in principle. I, I would never really side with a group, but I would be in principle and practice an evangelical. And in my journey, I've now reached more of a, I'm just beyond or post or just done with evangelicalism as a whole. And evangelicalism takes the Bible and makes the Bible something that it was never meant to be. So when we walk through scripture, some things are said, some things are talked about where it might become very threatening to your tradition, your confession, or maybe just what you learned in Sunday school. And I think a lot of things that we learned in Sunday school were out of convenience, nothing, you know, nothing bad about our Sunday school teacher. They just did the very best that they knew what to do with. Um, yet, I would say that staying in the Sunday school answer and imposing that Sunday school answer on adults and people that are struggling, going through faith crises, maybe relationship crises, we just impose a Sunday school answer. I think that that really has gotten us in trouble. One thing has gotten us in trouble. Um, our continuation of the oppression of women or gender um, in our community circles, our, our faith community circles, is definitely has done much, much damage that we've just allowed 50% of our population to just sit on the bench. Now, some people would say, well, that's really offensive. You just said that we were sitting on the bench. Well, honestly, when somebody is not allowed to express their calling in the fullest of ways in every possible vein of a Christian community, you're, you're making them sit on the bench at some points in, in ministry. And so as, as honoring as we've tried to be as an evangelical, as we've tried to work within this system of oppression and still honor people and still call our, you know, like, I, I mean, I've heard it all, you know, like our, our Queens, we've, we've said, you know, the men will stand up and say, these are our Queens and we honor you. Like, like they need that from us. And, and like, like we're like, like giving them this gift, you know, kind of like a virtue signal or a, uh, or just a, a pat on the head type of thing. It's awful what we've done. Awful, awful, awful. So over the last couple of weeks, I've been really uh, digging around in mm, Rick Warren's material, what he has said about women leadership, uh, really has moved into more of an egalitarian or full expression of gifts and all roles in the church women can serve in all roles of the church really appreciate that that somebody that famous and that you know big of a pastor and in, in you know life can could uh, actually affirm that women are in uh capable you know, like he's, he's used some words on like oh yeah thanks for saying it after 50 years but but honestly you know, at least he's, he's saying something. Um, so I really appreciate that somebody like him is deconstructing his views too. So, so we have to, in deconstruction, whether it be Keith's deconstruction or, or my deconstruction or Jake and Sheree's deconstruction, we have to ask the question, why are we holding on so tight? And what are we afraid of? 
and Sharia had this great diagram a long time ago that said we move from this tradition that we've always believed into now I'm afraid. And there's this like, oh my gosh, the sky is falling. I'm going to go to hell. And then you could deconstruct that and you just figure out there is no hell. But, <laughs> but honestly, honestly, uh, deconstruction is an important exercise for growth. And if we don't engage in it, if we don't do it, then we're just going to remain the same as a culture, as a people, as a society, um, as Christians, we're going to re just remain, uh, remain the same. So that's all I wanted to say about that. Just a couple of words before we get into Mark 11, because today we're just going to continue to deconstruct some things. And I want to give us license to do that. And I don't want to be afraid to do that. Sometimes they say things and I go, okay, is that true? Like, for example, is blood necessary for the forgiveness of sins? Are you afraid to answer that? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> if you go over to Keith Giles material, he has this uh, he has this article that he wrote in Pathias that he says we've uh, let me just look it up here really quick because it's um, it's actually a great titling. Sorry, Christians, you're reading Hebrews all wrong. <laughs> That's his title to his to his uh, to his article. I just love what he says. And then I actually reached out to him today and asked him to uh, just say just a couple of words about um, ten nineteen Hebrews ten nineteen for me because I I got hung up on ten nineteen. So he answered that for me, which was really good. But um, yeah, so is blood necessary? I had a I, I don't a think so. Yeah, Shreys and I don't think so. Jake and I talked about this earlier, so I know where he sits. Definite, definite no. Yeah, it's a definite no. But I had professors sit there in seminary, sit there in, in the like the fiery eye, bloodshot eyes, mm -hmm. looking at me going, it takes the blood. It takes the blood of Christ. You know, they just scream it at us. It took the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. But Hebrews 10 says that it's not the blood of bulls and goats is the body the body of christ see we live in the resurrection mm. so we live on this side and blood was a old testament idea and jesus comes along and says that covenant didn't work and doesn't has never worked and so jake you're muted right now for me <clears throat> even in the old testament blood was never oh for the forgiveness of sins it was just a reminder of it and so over it was over, a reminder of sin. It was a reminder of sin. Reminder, not forgiveness of such. Right. Because mm -hmm. like David and there's other characters in the Bible that blood was not necessary for the forgiveness of sins. And quote, the father forgives us without blood. Mm -hmm. So it's just mm -hmm. an interesting like de little deconstruction there where it's like, oh, wow. So when you sin... If you sin, that means that there's no like payment. 
Because see, that it's a very human understanding. When you do something wrong, you have to pay for that. There needs to be blood. Cut your wrists or whatever. You know, it's like what what are you saying when there has to be blood, right? For for the forgiveness of sins, there has to be a sacrifice. So we have this really, like Jake said this afternoon, we have a very misunderstanding of this substitutionary atonement theory idea. Big words for big people. But uh, but it's a substitutionary atonement where we think that Christ is like this substitute and God hated him on the cross and all this like weird stuff, you know, and Jesus had to and we killed him and all this stuff, you know, it's, it's like, well, he was mortal. So, he, you know, death was inevitable. It's turning it's turning the gospel into quid pro quo. Right. Mm -hmm. Which it so it's very it's. It's very quid pro quo, but it's like the reverse of quid pro quo or the opposite. Like I give to you and you give to me. But if you wrong me, you pay. Give to and take? That, huh? Give to take? Well, I mean, are you hurt and I make you pay for it? It's still an idea of quid pro quo somewhere in there. There's, a, there's an exchange, an iterative exchange of some kind. So the reason why I bring all that up is we have a problem in Mark. We're leading up to this problem where it ends. You know, the book of Mark ends at a really bad spot. You know, <laughs> they went away crying or whatever the ending sentence is. You know, like, like they, yeah. they went away afraid. <clears throat> so, so it's a really bad, very Catholic ending, I would say. It's a very orthodox Catholic ending where it's like we just really don't ever get to that resurrection type of idea. That Jesus, you know, we have to whip ourselves into suffering. What are the Mago Day or not Mago Day? What is Corpus Day? Corpus Day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I like the ending. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, I do too. <laughs> If you take the traditional ending, but, um, but we're not there yet. We're not there yet. I'm talking about, we got to get to the other side of the tomb. Back and give. That's what the what other you... gospels are for. If someone does something good today, most people think they have to do some, to do something good back and give them something for something good. <clears throat> so like, uh, forward. if you were, if you receive a gift, you'll have to return with a gift, and you just can't accept the gift and move on. You have a good time accepting people doing something out of the good of their heart. It's great. Yeah, very true. Rob, do you want to throw that comment up that we were reading cryptically? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think deconstructing our views of... of I was mentioning in my community last night that I had at my home. I just mentioned that much of our theology that we actually subscribe to anymore is built out of there movies and it's built out of movies. It's built out of cartoons. It's built out of, you know, uh, flannel graph things from Sunday school. It's, it's built out of some very, very simple, um, first glances like if you just first glance something oh let's make this character out of this let's make this story 
cute or let's make this a cartoon or like the passion of the Christ. Let's make it extremely violent so that that's all we're focusing on is just the ripping and tearing of flesh. And that's all we remember, you know, and then there's this quick like, oh, like this, this ending of like a second where the tomb is empty. It's like, wow, we just we just need to live. My friend Colleen said, uh, why don't we hang like little tombs that are empty like around our necks instead of crosses? <laughs> <clears throat> so which is very true, which is very true. All right, let's get to our passage. Mark 11, the ending. We're talking about authority, kind of overturning authority. We have a couple of authority verses here. Okay, I'll read. <clears throat> Jesus and his disciples entered Jerusalem again. As Jesus was walking around the temple, the chief priests, legal experts, and elders came to him. They asked, what kind of authority do you have for doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I have a question for you. Give me an answer. Then I'll tell you what kind of authority I have to do these things. Was John's baptism of heavenly or of human origin? Answer me. They argued amongst themselves. If we say it's of heavenly origin, then he'll say, then why didn't you believe him? But we can't say it's of earthly origin. They said this because they were afraid of the crowd, because they all thought John was a prophet. They answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus replied, neither will I tell you what kind of authority I have to do these things. So, Sassy Jesus. What? Sassy Jesus. Sassy Jesus. So this is one of these or, uh, uh, subversive type moves mm -hmm. of Christ. So kind of explain that to me. Why did Jesus not want to be known? Or why didn't he not want to be put out there as this is who we are, I am, this is what is, is happening? Well, first he brings up John, and yeah, we know what happened to John at this point is mm -hmm. that John's head was cut off earlier in Mark, and so really, I think if 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 it wasn't for the rulers in the area to acknowledge that it was from God or to face the wrath of the people that they that they follow or that they lead, that Jesus would have suffered the same fate that john did mm. right then and there yeah so there was a preservation issue because he was speaking against empire yeah and and especially like the 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 the, the chief priests and legal experts who would have handed john over to herod right mm. right Or maybe he's just playing games. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, like he could have, but probably not. But okay. part of the movement of the book is this question of what the Messiah is. Um, right. mm -hmm. And so I think there's also an element of that in there, too, that, that Jesus is holding his cards close. At this point, um, mm. it's part of the movement of the Gospel of Mark, this revelation of who the Messiah is. Um, yeah. 
So I think it works narratively also. Well, I think that people struggle with, in the Old Testament, people struggled with who Moses was, right? And so they were trying to figure out, okay, is this, I mean, think about how Moses was raised, who he was raised by, right, in the story, in the narrative. Mm-hmm. And then you you see that questioning of of Moses until miracles start happening and such and 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 so I think when any any leader, people really question leaders. Um, Jesus is questioning leaders like, or the people are questioning like empire leaders, but also like it took Peter a very long time uh, to actually get comfortable in declaring who Jesus was. Um, very long time. And probably some of the other disciples as well. It took them a long time. So I look at this and I, I also see this as a very a personal, hey, I just want you to bury this a little bit in you. Mm-hmm. I don't want you to go around telling everybody. I don't want mm-hmm. you to just go around spouting off, you know, about what you heard and what you saw and all this stuff. I want you to sit with this and... And sometimes when we go out too quick, you know, it's kind of like I got this idea and I'm going to go out with this idea and I'm just going to just come out of the gates running with it. And I make it about a quarter of a mile down the track and I fall down on my face or I don't follow through or um, or people really don't believe that I'm going to do it. Right. I do that enough. People are not going to believe I'm going to do it. So I think there's a little bit of Jesus's. I want this to be buried in you a little bit first. Yeah. Any other Something thoughts? Else I was noticing. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sure, yeah, you're, you're up. Um, so earlier we had Jesus entering Jerusalem for the first time, right? That was the, triumphal entry, Jesus basically stages a protest and then um, heads to the temple, starts throwing tables around, and then they yeah. leave the city. Right. And this this episode right here is Jesus entering Jerusalem for a second time. Um, and I think probably the location is also significant, um, especially in light of what happened last time Jesus was in Jerusalem. Right. Who gave you the authority so- to throw these tables around. Right, right. It's okay. also interesting how how fearful the the rulers are of the crowd, mm-hmm. and what we'll see in like where the where the passion comes about, the crowd is going to it shows the emotionality of the flip flop of the crowd. Right, that yeah. they believe Jesus was a prophet and a great a great person, but Mm -hmm. soon they're going to completely reject him. Mm -hmm. And to your point earlier, Kevin, about uh, hidden and buried in you further, Mm -hmm. that it wasn't a discussion of who Jesus was. The only, the only gospel that claims Jesus was God is John. Right. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I think, I think Mark is even wrestling with who Jesus was at this point as well. Yeah, probably. What I said that for, um, if I go back to that verse, the last part of 
which I'm not looking at the Greek, so I'm just going to read it in the English here. And maybe, Sheree, you can help me out. Jesus replied, neither will I tell you what kind of authority I have to do these things. So I'm just going to let you sit there and think about that for a while. <laughs> right? I'm not going to answer yep. your riddle. I'm not going to answer your riddle. <clears throat> I'm not going to be... I just want you to think about it. Yeah. Well, crowd crowds have always been scary. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Crowds, crowds are what makes tyrants. If you think about the tyrannical leaders of the world, um, it comes from it comes from building crowds with charisma. And so they stand up and they have, you know, a playbook that they work out of. They they have a they have methodology. a methodology to their quote tyrannical um, build up. And when one thing doesn't work, then they go to the next and then they go to the next. And so uh, Jesus probably is also very conscientious of what people would think of him if his authority comes from God and he is God and he just goes out and declares that he's God. <clears throat> and what kind of power does that hold <clears throat> to the crowds? And so they start mm -hmm just worshiping or idolizing, um, you know, this, this person on earth. So there's also, there's also that too. The crowds have always been uh, scary, but then you also have the crowds that are here during this time, during the festival, that this whole, like this whole scene leading up to, you know, the Passover, leading up to this celebration, leading up to the sacrifices, leading up to the temple. It all is a part and, and reflective of that story of Moses and the empire and Pharaoh. And we're going to overthrow Pharaoh. And so, <clears throat> so Jesus is also speaking through that filter as well is he doesn't want to just be seen as another Moses either to overthrow some Roman kingdom. He wants mm -hmm. to be seen eventually as greater than that. And so let's just not make me a new prophet. Let's make me something different. So we're not going to, you know, shut your mouth for a while. Shut your mouth. Shut your mouth. Okay, let's do Mark 12. Jake, you want to read that? Sure. Jesus spoke to them in parables. Imagine that. A man planted a vineyard, put up a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, built a tower. Then he rented to a, uh, to tenant farmers and took a trip. When it was time, he sent a servant to collect from the tenants his share of the fruit of the vineyard. But they grabbed the servant, beat him, and sent him, sent him away empty-handed. Again, the landowner sent another servant to them, but they struck him on the head and beat him disgracefully. He sent another one. That one they killed. The landlord sent many other servants, but the tenants beat some and killed others. Now the landowner had one son whom he loved dearly. He sent him last, thinking, they will respect my son. 
Mm. But those tenant farmers said to each other, This is his heir. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They grabbed him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. So what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become a vineyard. I'm sorry, has, has become, become a cornerstone. <laughs> the Lord has done this, and it's amazing in our eyes. They wanted to arrest Jesus because they knew that he had told the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Hmm. So give us some insights on that. We got a parable. So number one, it's a parable. It's it's not happening. It's a story. It's a low-hanging fruit parable, though. R right. What's the low-hanging fruit? Well, I just wanted to point out that I, I think it's probably noteworthy that this comes after the question of Jesus' authority. It ties mm. back to the previous section because it always does. Correct. Right. Because there is no section. It's all one thought, right? Right. right. Well, all one, all one passage, yeah. Right, right. The, the, I mean, the idea is that God sent prophets to warn and to change. But they kept living, I think, living fat. And they didn't want to change. Hmm. Trey, give us your thoughts on it. I was just thinking, this is maybe not helpful, but thinking about the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Yeah. So the people, the, the guy sending in the people, here's servant Why? one, dies, servant two, dies. You'd think after like the right. first time or second time, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, and that makes a little you bit uncomfortable when we're comparing God to the landowner, right? Right. Good expectations. Oh, good, well, yeah. Good intentions. I mean, number one, yeah, we have to be very careful about just putting God in this, like directly relating parables to God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, us. So we have mm -hmm. to be very careful of that. Yeah. So like the parable of the talents, if you put God in that parable, then God is a thief and a abusive leader. And yeah. we just we did we just can't do that. Can't um, the Bible doesn't teach that. So, well, what are the relationships? Let's put that let's put that scripture back up and look at the relationships there because I think that is important to look at. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a tower. So obviously, this person had money, right? Mm -hmm. Then he rented it to the tenant farmer and took a trip. So therefore he has more money because he rented it and was able to leave. 
When it was time, he sent a servant to collect from the tenant his share of the fruit of the vineyard. So that was the rent. <clears throat> but they grabbed the servant, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. So we have empire here. We have, mm -hmm. we have money. We have empire. Go ahead and throw that back up there. Money and empire. Again, the landowner sent another. So now we have, you know, problem number two. He sent another one. Problem number three. So we have these. We have these. Uh, he, you know, he's like Sharia said, just his version of insanity. He sent him last thinking they will respect my son. And then they kill the son and thinking that they were going to grab the money. So what will the owner of the vineyard do? He would come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So what's the relationship? What what is the meta, what is this metaphor teaching us about God, Jesus, and people? I mean, my meta, my main thought is that God still will try, no matter what, mm. to redeem the religious leaders. So if the religious leaders are the the tenants, yeah, right, they're still trying to collect rent. Right, the the landowner. Even after so, what's the rent? People. What's the rent? Blood. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the blood. <clears throat> what is the rent? I mean, all that's required of us is just right, right living. It's not. It's not much to ask for. Yeah. Just be kind. Be kind. Well, I think that the servants are the ones that like are chewed up by the religious leaders. So you could think of those people as the marginalized or the the servants are the ones that are actually like following God. They might be the people that, um, you know, are not in the inside. They're not making any money off of this whole thing, right? So they're just sent in. Uh, so they're workers for the, for the leader. I think possibly the rent uh, is the blood. there has to be blood no i think that what people think of as the 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 tenants thought it was blood hmm. but when they asked for it it wasn't given so they killed them well we actually yeah. asked tells for something different is. it tells us hmm? what the rent is right what is the rent just some wine oh that's true. It's part of the the vineyard, so the wine. Yeah. yeah. It's a difficult one to to unpack. But I think the uh, I think that the tenants are the the people that the uh the caretakers of what God has given them and they're destroying it. 
Yeah. Yeah, they're selfish with it. They're not giving it to back to God. They're not giving it to the servants. They're not giving it to people. They're not, they're selfish. They're not generous. There's a lot of thoughts there. Trey, have any other thoughts on it? Um, I mean, I have some thoughts on, on paying rent and whether that is what God requires <laughs> okay, or what makes a just society. Um, but I don't know that that helps us understand this parable any better. Yeah. Hmm. Well, a lot of people interpret uh, interpret this in, I mean, people interpret this in all different kinds of ways, but I, I think it's one of those ideas that we don't live in an agrarian society. We're not like in that, in that time. So, so to really have a full understanding of what Jesus was trying to teach is, you know, kind of a guess, I think, with this. But I, I think it's an important... Um, it's an important parable to just sit with and say, okay, again, religious leaders were just crushing the religion. They were crushing this faith. They were crushing. So we have the, the fig tree. Now we have this. And so we know that religious leaders are the target. They are the sinners that Jesus is pointing to. There's other people declared to be sinners in scripture, but the religious leaders are the sinners of, in Jesus's view. So you look at these people as, um, you know, just crushing the faith and not like doing the right thing. Um, not giving the fruit away. Let's call it the fruit, the fruit of the vine. They're not giving the fruit of the vine away. So Jesus has something to say about that. So, um, yeah, so they are, they, they are once again, the problem, once again, the problem. So let's continue on. Let's see if we can get some more insights back into that scripture by looking at the next passage. I can read again. Okay. They sent some of the Pharisees and supporters of Herod to trap him with his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you're genuine and you don't worry about what people think. You don't so show favoritism, but teach God's way as it really is. Does the law allow people to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay taxes or not? Since Jesus recognized their deceit, he said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a coin. Show it to me. And they brought one. He said to them, whose image and inscription is on this? Caesar's, they replied. Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. His reply left them overcome with wonder. Okay. Put that verse back up there and let's unpack it a little bit. Jake, let's unpack it with you first. Okay. So if ever there was a section in Mark that was added la later, I feel like this would be the one. 
Mm-hmm. Yep. And so it's... It, it, I don't feel like it matches the entire rest of the book. Uh, especially this string of passages here. Especially with the string of passages, it doesn't fit. Mm. I think in... So there's also a theory that there's multiple Pauls that write in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And that Paul 1 was uh, anti-empire, was was subversive, was overthrowing the regular social norms. And there's a second Paul that arises that is very pro-empire, pro-movement, and and is, is trying to keep the status quo. And so... Mm-hmm. This I feel like is actually kind of kind of the same thought that the mm. whole time the whole time Jesus is is teaching anti empire anti 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 taxes are a different thing, but the the idea is that why why even go into this line of thought except unless you want your people to pay their taxes. Another thought I have is that the inscription on the coin says mm. son of God. Right. And so I'm not sure if Jesus was trying to just skirt the idea that that it is a it is a give to Caesar what is Caesar's, so it is this idea of this a fake inscription but give to God what belongs to God could be an assertment that Jesus is the son of God in this passage. Make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can we go back now to that other scripture? Back to... Uh, the authority one? Yeah, right. No, this one. Oh. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're right. When I read this, it's completely disconnected from the next section. So that the next section doesn't make sense. It kind of ties to the previous one, like just authority. Yeah. But there's nothing to indicate a new scene either. Nothing. Which means it should be connected. Right. Should be. But it's not. Um, so if I just look at this passage, Mark 12, one through 12, I see first that they are, they're rejecting God. Correct? Yeah. Okay. They're rejecting also God's economy. Okay. Correct. Because God's economy in this parable would be that. So if God's economy is different than human economy, right? Or just empire economy, then this passage of scripture, what I'm thinking is if you just boil it down to rejection of God and rejection of God's economy, their God is wanting like a portion of their fruit. God wants that fruit. So I'm going to give you this land, work the land and give me back uh, the fruit. 
They reject that setup. They want it all for themselves. And they're willing to kill to get it. And they're willing to kill uh, up to the point that they're killing the sun. Right? Correct, mm -hmm. yeah. To keep their own economy. So now fast forward. Go now to 13. So now we are in empire economy. Mm -hmm. So if Jake's filter that he says all gospels are written through an economic system, is this just a play between God's economy and and empire economy? Maybe. Um I don't I don't think that nowhere else in scripture is it bifurcated. Okay, so God's, you're saying that God's economy is empire economy? What are you saying there? That it's either, it's either God's economy or, or it's, it's evil, basically. Right, so why is Jesus now telling us to pay up to Caesar then? Because they wouldn't pay up to God over here in, in the first passage so now he's saying to pay up to caesar it's i mean i i would probably say it was added later mm. so do you think that that person that added this later do you think that they were trying to reconcile the previous passage somehow hmm. no no because i think it's this is a, just about taxes well, I mean, if you think about the tenants paying rent, right? Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. That's a and difficult also, one. I mean, if we look at it also as this has been a string of questions about who's in authority, right? Mm -hmm. And so. Okay. It's the issue is, is like, is, are the religious leaders, the tenants, are they trying to be so in authority and failing miserably at it? Mm. Okay. Oh, uh, we didn't talk about, um, the idea of image in that verse, right? Okay. That Caesar's image is on the coin. Give to Caesar's what is Caesar's give to God, what belongs to God what bears God's image, humanity. Um, mm -hmm. Right. And so yeah. with the idea of this passage being added later, um, I wonder if that's a way of spiritualizing it. Mm. So that it's not about economic participation. It's about... Um, The way you use your gifts. Uh, <laughs> that's that evangelicalism coming in, although it was added much, <laughs> much prior to that. Okay, right. well, let's now advance forward and see if we can learn anything in the passage next.
about the previous three, or the previous two. So now we're in 18. Let's see where we end up. Sadducees who denied that there is a resurrection came to Jesus and asked, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a widow but no children, the brother must marry the widow and raise up the children for his brother. It just sits wrong. Now there are seven brothers. The first one married a woman. When he died, he left no children. The second married her and died without leaving any children. The third did the same. None of the seven left any children. Finally, the woman died. At the resurrection, when they all rise up, whose wife will she be? All seven married her. Jesus said to him, isn't this the reason you are wrong? Because you don't know either the scriptures or God's power. When people rise from the dead, they won't marry, nor will they be given in marriage. Instead, there will be like God's angel. They will be like God's angels. As for the resurrection from the dead, haven't you read in the scroll from Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how, how God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He isn't the God of the dead, but of the living. You are seriously mistaken. Hmm. So what is this about? So Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. So he's directly addressing their, uh, their theology. Um, by saying that they don't believe in the resurrection. They came to Jesus, and there just happens to be seven. So who are these brides, and who are these grooms? <laughs> Do we have an idea? It kind of reminds me of Tobit. Okay. Definitely. Tell me more. Um, it's been a while since I've read the story, so I may not have my details correct, but um, one of the characters in the story is a young woman who um, she gets married, and before they are able to consummate the marriage, a demon kills her husband. And this right. happens seven times before she is then married to Tobias, or yeah, Tobit's son, Tobias, and I think they put some fish on an altar and it kills the demon or something like that. Um, but okay. essentially the curse is lifted and she's no longer plagued by that demon. But it's the same, the same theme of, of seven marriages. I don't know if they were brothers. Um, but all marriages mm. that didn't um, lead to children. Mm. Okay. Jake, do you have any thoughts on this? Just at seven would be a, a, a number of completion. Right. And so I, I think what's most interesting about the passage is how... It is a debate of theology and the resurrection, but uh, Jesus, uh, I guess the, the the author of Mark prefaces what the Sadducees believe 
and it, it makes you wonder who who the intended audience of this passage was because they should because know. they wouldn't have known that right yeah they, they sh if they were it, to, to make it as an early date they would have definitely known what the sadducees were mm -hmm. and then in the early church what <clears throat> what was happening so that they had to have a discussion on 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 if the if there's actually a resurrection or not hmm. so perhaps we're looking like an anti-gnostic passage here well it is a reference to tobit so the sadducees are referencing tobit So they're, in a sense, maybe trying to trick Jesus with I, this. I think they're probably using an exaggerated ex example, too, just to poke fun at this idea of resurrection. Right. Like, see how dumb this idea is? You've got this problem. Like, whose wife is she? Right. Well, it's uh, Tobit 3, chapter 3, verse 8. Yeah. I just looked it up. So, so this passage a little farther than I thought we were going to get tonight, but, uh, cause last time we got through five <laughs> verses, <laughs> but when I, when I see things like this lifted out of, you know, pre, you know, what is it? What is Tobit? Like a couple hundred BC or something. Is that true? Probably. That, that early. I'd have to look so. that up. I'm huh? Not sure. I'm not the sure. Sadducees would have known about this story. It. Yeah. Right. They would have known the story. They would have cherry picked this story, put uh -huh. it in front of Jesus, and made him answer uh, that question. So, Third what do we do? Century, right. <clears throat> what is it? Third or second century BCE, you're right? Yeah. Okay. So. So what do we do with scriptures like this? I knew we were going to get to the deconstruction part of this eventually. So we have we have an addition with the coin. And we basically have a lifting of a quote out of Tobit 3.8. So does this make this less, more? What is this? What does this make the Bible? You mean using external sources to like make stories? Yeah. Well, the Bible wasn't written in a vacuum. <clears throat> but people believe that and people will actually say, you know, those words on that page is like a dictated word of God without error. Well, people will say that people will say, <laughs> well, I mean, what but, do we and, do with that they, though? What do, what do we and, tell our people? Like when it comes to these scriptures, okay, this one was added later. <laughs> this one's a direct lift out of some pre Gnostic, right? You know, Gnostic writing. Uh, what do we, what do we say? Doesn't relate yeah. to the other passages. That other passage makes no sense. <laughs> I mean, that's textual <laughs> criticism. And so like, is that necessary? No. Necessary? What do you mean? 
Like, is it necessary to know all that information? It's not. Okay. I think what you do with it is is most important. Are you violent with the text or are you open with the text? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, like, you can you can not know any of this stuff, read the text in a loving way, and be just fine, and believe that it was plenary verbal dictated by God, every word. Mm-hmm. But is that wrong? No, it's just not right. <laughs> how about if, like... How about if, like, you just simply, it, it was simply, like, the vineyard scripture is some, like, illustration metaphor about God's economy, human economy, the supernatural, the natural. The, the, the Pharisees said the religious leaders of the law rejected not only the supernatural, but they also rejected the natural. They were rejecting everybody that was human and everything spiritual. Okay. Next passage of scripture has to do with a coin, right? Maybe it was added later, but is the teaching there? You know, there's natural things and supernatural things. Like pay, pay what is due to the natural and pay what is due to the supernatural. I think you also have to give honor where honor's doing both. Put into the mix also who has authority. I think the the issue with with the resurrection passage here is not is not so cryptic as to say God has authority. Hmm. Yeah. Well, how about like then advance forward with that idea you know every time you see seven in scripture right you have to say okay is there something else going on there so is this the bride is this like the bride of like the 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 bride of let's see that would be opposite then that wouldn't work would it mm -mm. so what is the seven like the seven husbands just a complete number. Just a complete yeah, I think, number. Um, in the story of Tobit, um, I believe she has seven who die, and then right. it's the eighth one who sticks. Um, <laughs> so seven, seven is the number of completion. Right. The curse has been completed. Yeah. Eight is a number of a new beginning. Yep. Yeah. So maybe, maybe there's nothing really spiritually profound, but maybe these are just very simple ideas that either were added in, included, Jesus said them, whatever, mm -hmm. were included just as little teaching points. They used to call these pericopes. So Mark 12 matches Matthew whatever the pericope this little pericope is a, just a teaching point through the book of Mark wherever it came from any other closing thoughts I think we dredged through it pretty good
Well, that was it's weird. Okay to not There's know. some weird stuff there. I thought we were only going to get through the authority passage and then we blew through that like it was nothing. And so <laughs> we'll probably have more to say about this next week. All right. Well, with that, good night, everybody. Thanks for joining us.